I'm John Bergman. Thanks for joining us on the Climbing Business Journal podcast today. With these episodes and at CBJ in general, we work to inform, to connect, and to inspire people who work in and with climbing businesses. And I think that's a good lead-in to today's guest, which is Dave Hudson, because Dave has a lot of information and knowledge to impart. As you will hear, Dave has been involved in climbing business for a long time, specifically on the youth coaching and organizational and competition judging sides of things. And his involvement in all that actually predates the IFSC, it predates USA Climbing, it even predates most gyms having viable youth programs. But what's really cool is that Dave hasn't planted his feet in the history of the industry. As you'll hear, he's continued to evolve and he's got an eye to where things might be going in the years to come. Dave's currently the youth manager at First Ascent. He's also the head coach there. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dave Hudson. Essential Climbing is a new name for a group of brands that have served climbers, gyms, and home walls for decades. They distribute premium, quality polyurethane holds manufactured at Aragon, import fiberglass macros and wood volumes, have a line of patented adjustable walls, and even design and install custom climbing walls and padded floors. Their brands include Kumiki, Everactive, Expression, Squadra, Lapis, and Axis. Learn more at EssentialClimbing.com. True Blue is the only auto belay with magnetic braking. They're proud to be the official auto belay of USA Climbing, and True Blues can be found on climbing walls across the world. Their one-of-a-kind no-delay belay program will automatically ship you a ready-to-hang True Blue before your current one is due for service. Learn more at HeadRushTech.com. First of all, I thought it might be really interesting if you could go over a bit of your background. Sure. Uh, yeah, it's it's been a long time um, since I've been in the industry. So I started maybe back in the really the late 80s. Uh, so there were very few gyms in the country and I kind of talked my way. I was living in New York working in advertising and kind of talked my way into uh a training clinic for the, it wasn't the IFSC then, it was under the UIAA at the um, Snowbird International World Cup, the first World Cup in the US in 88. So I went out there and got trained as an international judge, uh, which was was pretty funny because I really didn't know that much about climbing at the time. <laughs> but it was an amazing experience uh, and really got me addicted to climbing, um, quit my job, spent some time traveling out west. And then got involved in the industry proper by uh, managing what was at the time the biggest indoor wall of the world in the world, which is the, um, the Sporting Club. It's a health club in Chicago. And the wall went up kind of the seven stories of an, an atrium, elevator atrium on the backside. So it was like a 105 foot tall wall. Um, and we actually did host some competitions back then. Of course, that was just it was really a nascent industry and like nobody knew who was going to actually run it. So USA Climbing didn't exist. People were kind of vying for position on who might be the governing body at the time. Uh, and so we did something called the Danskins Women's National Championship there way back in the day. Um, 
and a couple other events. It was, it was really interesting. Um, from there, it just kind of evolved. I, I managed some other gyms uh, out in Salt Lake City, Recreation, one of the first bigger gym chains on the Black Diamond campus and some other health club walls. And when I was back in Chicago, um, I started working in a really tiny bouldering gym in the basement of a gymnastics gym. And I always kind of, uh, it was kind of a dungeon, which everyone will say it was a dungeon. Um, and it's one of the, it's still going on, one of the oldest gyms in the country, actually. Um, so I know I've seen some some stories done on um, like TVA and Chattanooga and how old that was, but that's not even nearly as old as Hidden Peak uh, because the person who bought out instead of working at TVA, Kasha Pietras, is one of my initial teen kids when she was eight years old. Uh, so Hidden Peak is much older. So it's still there. You know, it started probably in 85 and uh, they kind of moved to a new gymnastics location. I took it over in around 1990. And, uh, and at that time, it was still very new. Um, so USAC did not exist. Uh, the, it was still kind of people were juggling for control a bit. So uh, Jeannie Niemer out in the Northwest, Pacific Northwest, started the um, JCCA, Junior Competition Climbing Association. And um I got got involved with that and uh, started the Midwest region because there weren't there was it was only local kind of you know regional and then she just kind of recruited people to do other regions around the country and after a few years that was national uh, only rope climbing no bouldering and there was no youth bouldering for worlds as well in Europe um, and that and then the same thing happened with uh, uh, bouldering EBS Scott Rennick uh, started that and then that turned to the ABS which was extremely successful. And uh, we did some comps for them and uh, just kind of continued to get involved. So I was on the board for a little bit for the JCCA that turned into the USCCA, uh, then the PCA, which is kind of a, a big comp organization out of Salt Lake City, Mike Beck and Mike Call and some of those guys, uh, Black Diamond people and uh, the front, which was one of the early gyms in the country. It all kind of settled out when ABS merged uh, and Worley, uh, Moulter kind of uh, bought it out. and. Um, it all merged together. I'm not sure what year that was, early 90, early mid 90s into uh, the USAC. Um, and then it's been kind of going strong since then. You know, we've had an actual national governing body. The reports to the North American Council, reports to the IFSC, and, you know, sends kids to worlds, et cetera. So, yeah, that's kind of my history. And I stayed at that little gym uh, training climbers for, you know, 18 years. Uh, and Put some national champions out of that little gym. Kasha uh, Pietras won nationals back in the day. Still a very, very strong climber. Now is in the industry managing out in Boston, climbing gyms. Um, Isabel Faust, who's also kind of a pro boulder. Um, and Michaela Kirsch. Uh, Michael Rourke trained with us for a little bit in there. So it was it was, it was a great little space. It was about, uh, I don't know, 900 square feet, 1,000 square feet, about 15 feet tall. Chopped rubber landing surface. But it, but it was it was just a really fun, really high energy place to be, and um, it was great because you know managing it, it's almost a co-opy feeling place. I got to do whatever I wanted with the kids in terms of training, so that was a huge flexibility. So from there, I moved on. Uh, finally, we had a, a big gym open in Chicago. No one could solve that problem. So First Ascent, which I'm one of the founders of now, opened in 2015 with our first location. We now have seven. Uh, and BKB is here as well. And then movement came here, which you probably, I'm sure, you know, so it's, you know, it's really growing in Chicago, but at the time there was just nothing but a couple of health club walls and hidden peak. So it's nice to see it grow the way it has and provide careers for people. And it's, it's just a really different world now. You've seen it all. There's a lot that I would love to get into in depth, but I guess 
one of the overarching questions, I'd love to hear you riff on this a bit, is as a Midwesterner myself, it's nice to hear about your own contributions to the Midwest and your involvement in the Midwest and the Midwest foothold in this competition climbing history. And you referenced Scott Rennick as well. I, I think it's easy for people to just assume that that Colorado and Utah and maybe Oregon have always been these the most important places because they've certainly held significant importance in more recent years with the headquarters of these various organizations and stuff. And yet, sure. as your history attests, the Midwest really played a huge part in the history of a, the American comp scene and the history of the American gym scene. It really did. I mean, I mean, once it kind of took off, once we had regions around the country after Jeannie started at JCCA, it was strong everywhere. And if you look at the stats, it kind of continues to be the case. So when you, you know, do analysis, which USAC has done and I've done just personally, it's easy to do. Who's on our national team over the last 10 or 15 years? Uh, who's podiuming? It's, it, it's relatively spread out around the country. So you see uh, a pretty even percentage of national team members for the youth, um, you know, from Colorado, New Mexico, California. Um, and it, it varies. It, it's cyclical in a way. But um, it's really, you know, there have been a lot from the Midwest. There have been a ton of great, strong uh, youth climbers out of Minnesota uh, with Alex Johnson and other other people like that. Um, and out of uh, Planet Rock. Planet Rock has produced tons out of Detroit, uh, out of Ann Arbor and Detroit, uh, Detroit suburb uh, of top, top climbers um, and even Chicago. So it really has been kind of spread around. So it's interesting. It just, yeah, it seems like it's focused out there. And, and, and size-wise, like last year, we were the largest region in USAC by far. We had the most number of kids signed up, which was our, and we've already, and we dumped, they dumped a couple of states out of our region because it was too big the year before. So we actually moved out. We used to compete against Hoosier Heights in Indiana, a very big team, and Planet Rock, a huge team. Uh, and they moved that and rearranged the regions. Uh, and now we're just kind of Wisconsin, Iowa, Minnesota, uh, and I think we go out to Oklahoma and those areas, but we're still the largest region. So it's, yeah, it's really, it's really been centered everywhere. And you've seen just top, top climbers come out of all parts of the country, East coast and the mid South, um, you know, Florida and Atlanta produced a lot of good climbers. Team Texas, of course, produced tons of great climbers with uh, coach Kyle Blink scales down there. Um, but it, it has been surprising. People just who don't follow it just think it's yeah like boulder front range area and now salt lake um but for youth especially that's that's not really the case my working theory has always been that i think in the midwest i don't want to shortchange any of the great outdoor climbing that is available here in the midwest because obviously with red river gorge and on and on there's plenty of great real rock but there's no denying the fact that it's a different kind of access when you're talking about being in Colorado or Utah compared to being in Indiana or Illinois or Kentucky or something like that. And so I've always thought that maybe one of the reasons why the gym scene did really thrive here and continues to thrive here in the Midwest is because for a lot of people, if you want to go climbing, gyms are maybe not the only option, but certainly the quickest and easiest option. You don't have to drive hours and hours to get to the outdoor crag or something like that. You can just go right downtown and there's a gym there. And I think that that it's been that way since, since the mid nineties, really. Yeah, that's exactly true. Uh, so there's very little climbing close by devil's Lake is kind of a classic area. Uh, but there's not much there. I mean, it's trad climbing or rigging a top rope from above. You have access to the top of the cliff. 
Uh, and bouldering has developed there a little bit in the last 10 years, uh, kind of in a talus field. Uh, John Gill actually put up some classic boulders back in the day. Um, but that's still three hours. And that's not modern sport climbing. So to go to a true modern area, it's the Red River Gorge. And that's, you know, a seven hour trip, uh, depending on traffic. So that's a long, hard weekend. Uh, and so especially for youth, you know, we have so many kids on the team over the years who have just never been outdoor climbing. So really gyms are their access. Uh, and for adults too, if, if it's not the main access, it's at least a starting point where you know, go to Boulder or Salt Lake and lots of people get into it by going with a friend or a guide or somebody. So they start outside and they may access the gyms in the off season, but generally everything starts in the gyms in the Midwest for sure. Can you talk a little bit about how the youth programming is organized at First Ascent? Because obviously there are multiple First Ascent gyms and it's since it is places like Chicago and whatnot, there are there's a lot of high traffic moving through those gyms. So can you just explain, yeah, how it's how, how it all comes together? Sure. Uh, so we have a, a strong rec program like most gyms do. So we kind of offer age group rec classes, you know, little scramblers, little spider monkeys, little four and five year old scramblers up through stone masters, you know, we do these different age groups. Um, and then from there, we also have a competitive team. And since I came from Hidden Peak with the team, we kind of were able to start with a strong, large team on, a, on day one. So really, uh, we also, uh, a lot of the um, Evanston Athletic Club and other health club walls that had teams, smaller teams, those employees came to First Ascent too when a, when a gym finally opened. So a lot of those kids came with. So, you know, the very first year, we probably had 35 kids on our on our climbing team. Um, and that evolved very quickly up to about 100 so we have five levels. We have a pre-team, which is kind of a transition from rec classes into the team program. We need a little bit more training, learning how to train a bit. And then we have development team and teenage teams. So those are more casual, two days a week. And then elite development team, EDT, and uh, the elite team, which train three days a week, plus you know an extra one or two on their own, usually. And those have been strong since the beginning, but they've grown. So we have maybe 100 in the program total, maybe 30 on the elite team. And obviously the, the lower levels change year to year. Kids move up uh, from, you know, rec classes to development team or development team to EDT and people leave, people move, you know, switch around. Um, but that's kind of how we're, we're scheduled. So we're five days a week, but kind of two days for the lower programs, three days for the upper programs. The rec classes have been tough since COVID. We had a fantastic rec program with probably, you know, 150, anywhere from 150 to 180 kids in it at any time. So on a Saturday morning, we might have, you know, five Gramblers classes running at nine in the morning and five Rock Warriors at 10 in the morning. But that's been really difficult since COVID. And it's not so much that climbers, the, the kids don't aren't there. It's that we can't get the instructors. So as you probably heard, you know, you listen to the news that, you know, from subways to to Walmarts, to get, you know, to climbing gyms, it's been really difficult with um, staffing uh, for everyone the last two years. And so when we're only going to hire someone who's very qualified and very good with the kids, and it's just, we just have trouble getting them. So we're significantly smaller as a rec program, but we hope to get that back up to pre-COVID levels soon. Yeah, that's been something that we've tracked at CBJ in really all aspects of the industry from coaches to people working at the 
the front desk and whatnot. Yep. And it's a tricky thing because like you said, just like the rest of the country, it's not like there's an easy solution to that. And especially with something like coaches where you, you do have to have some significant credentials, not to mention there's certain responsibilities the gym has to, to vet people if they're going to be working with kids and all right. that. So that's, right. that is a real challenge for sure. It is. It's, it's been difficult. And, uh, it's been across the board at our gyms and across the board in terms of job titles. So from setters to coaches or rec instructors to basically our front desk staff, our hospitality staff, it's kind of in the hospitality staff, we expect a turnover and at least we're getting constant influx of qualified people that we can look at and hopefully hire, you know, and fill those spots. It's still been a challenge, but for instructors, for kids, it's, it's just much harder because we have fewer applicants and we're just not accepting nearly as many as qualified that we really want to work with the program. So. Well, speaking of the pandemic, I don't know if you remember this, but the last time you and I talked at length was leading up to the Olympics. I was working on a piece for climbing magazine and we were speculating what type of impact will the Olympics have on youth teams, youth programming, participation, all of that stuff that was pre pandemic. So obviously that threw a whole other X factor into, into the mix. Right. But since the Olympics, have you noticed there is that as expected or as predicted uptick in interest in families that saw the Olympics, saw climbing in the Olympics, and then kind of came to the gym wanting to try it after that? You know, I'll, I'll be honest, it's, it's really hard to judge that because of COVID. So, you know, we take a look at our, our rec numbers, which of course would be the people who are like, oh, this is cool. I just saw this. I want to try it, you know, kind of entry level. They have not gone up, uh, but I think a lot of that is COVID. Uh, you know, like I said, we do have this wait list of kids that want to take classes and we just don't have classes to offer them. But honestly, I have not seen it. I have not seen a huge influx of people who saw it on uh saw the Olympics and said, Hey, I want to come try that. Um, it seems to be just sort of the natural organic growth that we see of people saying, Hey, that sounds fun. I heard about it or somebody told me about it, or they saw one of our, we don't do a lot of advertising. We do, you know, basically social media and some basic marketing, like most gyms are not spending big dollars on big advertising. Um, and come in and try it and and like the experience or don't like the experience. Uh, and that's been the same with kind of like kids and families as well. So, from my perspective, I think it's, it, you know, I don't have any data on it, but it, it, it seems like it's, it's stayed about constant. I have not seen a huge influx. and I've not heard people mention to me that they saw it on the Olympics um, per se. That's been one of the big questions that we've asked is, did we overestimate the impact that the Olympics was going to have? I don't think we'll be able to answer that probably for several years, Right. but it is something that it's been interesting and difficult to track because it's so coupled with the pandemic and all of that right. stuff. I think, you know, climbers watched climbing in the Olympics, <laughs> kids who climb and adults who climb. Uh, and they watched the world cups too, streaming, right. If they're really into it, like my kids will watch the world cups, the elite team kids. Now the lower level kids don't, don't, don't watch it. Don't even really know their world cups. And then as far as general population, I just don't think enough people saw it and, and said, Hey, I'm going to go try that. I'm going to look up a climbing gym, see what's in my community and go try it any more than we normally see people looking up something fun to do. And they find a climbing gym and they come try it with their family. So we'll see how that evolves. Um, I think, you know, maybe if it gets a little higher profile, a little more coverage and better time slots, that sort of thing that you might have a little bit more of that. I'm glad you said, we'll see how it's evolved because I, I, how it evolves, because I want to talk about evolution 
Before we look forward, though, let's look like a little backwards. If you mm-hmm. look back at the past maybe 10 years or five years, what has been the biggest evolution in youth programming? That's a good question. Um, I think the level of coaching has really increased. So I think that you're seeing um, a lot more kids in a lot more parts of the country having access to great coaching and great programs. I, I think the, the number of gyms that support that have increased. So 10 or 15 years ago, you had gyms that really bought into it and really spent money on coaches uh, and on developing a program, which is a significant investment um, with a very little return or no return at first. You really have to make that investment and get someone to come to your gym and to stay and to build a program. And so you saw a handful of gyms taken out, you know, noticeably, but, you know, obviously Team ABC or Vertical World or Team Texas with Kyle, you know, those sorts of gyms. Um, But a lot of gyms just didn't. They just didn't do it. So like the same Minnesota, it, it wasn't that as supported. And so a lot of those great climbers in Minnesota trained in Woody's and home walls. I mean, Alex Johnson trained at VE, but also mostly out of a home wall and home gym. Um, and Tyler had some other really strong people from up there too. So I, I think that's changed. I think most gyms realize the importance and significance of building a team and adding that into their revenue stream for one, but also it's just, it's really good marketing as well. Um, and it's just, uh, and they just want to support the sport and see the sport grow too. So they just kind of feel like it's an integral part of the sport that they need to participate in. So that's grown and, and the number of coaches has grown. And I think, you know, another thing is it's, we're on our second generation of coaches. So a lot of the kids I coached are coaching. Um, so, you know, Kasha is actually in a management position, um, Michaela does kind of private training off and on, but uh, we just hired another kid from Planet Rock who all of these original kids I've been talking about competed against. Very good climber named Tyler Hack. We just hired him as our head setter um, at our new Arlington location. So I'm seeing this second generation of setters and and coaches that were coached in a program um, before and that we didn't have that before. So it was first generation coaches kind of trying to figure it out as they go with those kids. Now those kids have been through a program for 10 or 12 years, gone through college and they're coming out and they're working in the industry and they have a tremendous amount more knowledge about how, how to coach somebody, how to train them and how to deal with competitions at a higher level as well. So I think that's one of the biggest changes I've seen as well as just overall numbers, I think as well. Uh, and then USA climbing, I think has made a strong change and there's always a, you know, a push pull uh, between dealing with, the grassroots and growing the grassroots and getting an eight-year-old who maybe the farthest they'll go is regionals and just wants to enjoy it and have a format that's enjoyable for them and have some success um, and kind of something that seems like it's geared for them. And then also have Colin Duffy and promote the Olympic team. And, you know, and if you look at their website in the last, the the remodel in the last year, it's very professional and corporate. And on the front page, it's it's always streaming on who won the World Cup and Olympics and what medals do we get. And I think that's great. Um, but like I said, there's that push-pull between grassroots and between promoting at a really high-end level, like this is an Olympic-level sport, and we want to participate at that level. Um, so I think that they that kind of push has really added uh, to the top, top climbers having the ability to get the the resources they need more and to train more and to compete at the highest level. So that's definitely a change I've seen too. Yeah. How do you handle that, that split, that dichotomy? Because I'll I'll try to explain, I'll try to explain how I see it and, and the uniqueness of the comp scene 
in other sports, like let's just take baseball or something, right? There is a rec program or a little league program, but eventually the, the kids that don't want to, that just want to do it recreationally kind of, you know, they sort of fall off and eventually it does funnel into this more elite track as the sole track, right? It's, it's, then you play in, in middle school and then you play in high school. And then if you're good enough, you play in college and, and like, like there aren't many rec high school baseball players, right? Like if you play, you're good and you play on the, the school team, whereas climbing now we have that Olympic track for the best of the best, but we also still have that rec track and you don't want those rec kids to, to lose that. Even if they know that as they get older, they're never going to be Olympic caliber. You still want them to compete in comps and you still want to hold comps and have programming that, that keeps them involved in, in the youth scene. So it's, it's, it's very unique. Climbing has these two tiers. Yes. You almost have to uh, serve, you know, serve them equally. And I think that's a challenge that USA Climbing has been um, struggling with a little bit. I think it's really hard to provide grassroots support and grow your membership base and then provide the for your high-end athletes and fund them to go to the Olympics and go to World Cups and compete um, and promote them. And I think they're at they're coming close to that inflection point where they um, they're trying to do both. Uh, because if you don't have enough grassroots people in the sport uh, and, and a base in your sport, you're not going to support the higher end athletes in the sport, right? On the other hand, if you don't support the high end athletes, they're not going to do well in the international competitions. They're not even going to get to go over there. They won't have the money. You know, they need the funding just to be able to travel and attend these, and they and they have trouble doing that. Um, I don't know when that. I think we're close to that inflection point. I, I don't know where it is. I don't think we're quite there yet. But at some point, you're going to have to have two tracks, I believe. So. I came, uh, grew up as a gymnast a bit, and gymnastics is the exact same way. And it, when you compete as a gymnast, there's level one, level two, level three, level four, but up to level ten, and females go up and males go down for some reason or vice versa. Um, and when you go to competitions, you're like, oh, I'm competing as a level four gymnast in seven to nine years old. Oh, I'm competing. I'm a level five, 11 to 13 year old. So you're only competing against people who are basically of your ability. So they've already broken you down into ability. But there's nothing like that in climbing. In climbing, when you come to regional championships, it, there's quite likely a uh, national team member in your category in, that's competing against, right? So we go just at the regional or divisional level, we're going to run into people who went to Worlds last year who are national team members. It's all open, fully open, level 10, you know? Um, and I think at some point, they're going to have to split that. They're gonna, there's going to have to be sort of a more recreational track and a higher level track. Uh, I'm not sure how they would do that. I, I've thought about it a lot. I do not have any recommendations for them. Um, it just seems like a really difficult thing to do. You have to, you have, to have um, enough kids to support both, right? I mean, you have to kind of cross over that level. Um, but I, it's, it just seems like it's inevitable at some point there because you're not going to want to have someone who is an eight-year-old who's brand new going to regional championships and you've got, you know, an 11 and under, there's a, there's a kid in the 11 under team ABC. I forget his name. It slips my mind. You know, he's climbing B10, B11, B12. He's, he's training with the 16, 17 year old boys on ABC, which are descending the hardest routes in the country. You know, he's like nine or 10 years old. So I think at some point that has to happen. I'm just not sure when and how they're going to do it. You know, one thought is if they go to more of a, what other sports do, which is maybe more of a state-based kind of thing. So you got to go through conference and sectionals and to um, 
you know, state championship and that feeds into USAC. I'm, I'm really not sure, but um, at some point it, it need, it's going to eventually happen. And I suppose speaking of the different state modeling, I, I guess a one logical answer or solution, although it's not an easy one, would be to get climbing integrated more into high schools as a high school sport, because then there would be this framework for every state with the high school athletic association would have just what you said, a sectional and then a regional and then a state championship. And then maybe that would funnel into the national championships or something like that. Obviously that takes infrastructure that isn't there right now in terms of climbing being offered at all these different schools and, and all that. Yeah, that's true. Um, however, it, it's become so popular in the last 15 years that almost every, again, this, this also speaks to access uh, for, for people of color and underprivileged people. But, uh, you know, at the higher, it, like in middle class communities, let's say in the northern suburbs here, almost every park district does have a wall and many of the high schools have a wall. And then, of course, there are many um, private gyms like us who you could partner with to run programs at. There's still limited access, but it's pretty good. Uh, so it's it's possible. Um, it would create a tremendous amount of infrastructure and buy-in, you know, from Illinois High School State Athletic Association or whatever it's called, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but I see it happening. I know when we had um, uh, Bouldering Nationals out in Colorado Springs, they were also hosting uh, like their state championship or something at the same time at the gym down there. Um, and I've seen, I know, you know, Denver Climbing League, there have been other, you know, private things that have sort of, that are not formed in USA Climbing outside of that, but then kind of feed into it in an informal way. They're just things that people do and they know that they can be, have fun at like the DCL when that was going on a really strong. And then some of them would compete at USAC at regional or divisional level and above. So it hasn't happened there yet, but um, I think it, the potential is there. Um, it just would take a lot of organization and a big, I think USAC would have to make a big push to help make that happen. Yeah, I guess as you yourself, as someone who has seen this alphabet soup that's in the history of the U.S. comp scene yeah. with the USCCA, JCCA, ABS, uh, you know, PCA, on and on. Do you think it would be, I hate to say easier because none of this would be easy, but uh, do you think it'd be easier for USA climbing to do this, to do both tracks, or is it a matter of USA climbing maybe focuses on the Olympic track because they are the national governing body. And then another separate organization comes in and handles maybe the rec track. And, and I'm not to say that those aren't around, like you said, there are, and there have been separate organizations like that. And there's even a kind of reformed JCCA and stuff like that. So which do you see as maybe the, the more logical way, if, if it's possible to, to pick one? That's a great question. Um, I, I think it could go either way. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it would take, it's, it's a very big endeavor. It's a big undertaking. If you want to start uh, your own kind of series, recreational series that caters for that lower end and make a national series. Um, I think that's, it would take somebody with a lot of ambition uh, to take that on. It's possible. I think that's definitely possible. I think you'd have to have a really good relationship with USA climbing uh, and they'd have to support each other. I also see USAC doing it. Um, but I think what you would need to do that is kind of part of USAC and their staff would focus on the elite level kids and that sort of thing, you know what I mean? And another half. So it's in a way it's kind of, you're splitting USAC in two in a way, the other half, all that staff focuses on is kind of the, the other 
the lower level uh, series that's doing it that's more grassroots um, and more recreational. And there's no reason they couldn't do that. That's definitely very possible. And, you know, maybe you split the website. You just kind of divide it in two, basically, and give both of them the resources they need in terms of staffing and funding to, to grow that. Um, I'm not sure USAC has enough funding to do that at this point. Um, I know that's that's often a challenge for them, too. They're a you know, 501c3 you know, nonprofit um, that generates a lot of money, obviously, from from the membership dues um, and competition fees, but I think that they, and they're looking to get some bigger sponsors. That's been a big challenge for Mark Norman, who's the new CEO uh, I know, and he seems to be doing quite well at it, honestly, um, signing on things like Prudential and other people. But I think that that, you know, grassroots people say, I don't care about that. What do we worry about getting Prudential as a sponsor and doing these big announcements? But on the other hand, if they get enough of that and they have the funding, they could take on something as massive as, starting an entire rec series that caters to a different end of the climbing spectrum of the, of the kids out there. Um, Cause it is going to be very resource intensive. Yeah. And you had said that you would need enough kids to support it, which I totally agree. But I think also what that translates to is you need the parents to really get on board with it. And yeah, I, I think the parents would be because I, we do have a lot of problems. We send kids we really encourage everyone to compete because we think it's a great way to teach life lessons. Like, uh, you know, we're very big on um, sort of the different PCA, the Positive Coaching Alliance uh, and work they've done, which is not climbing based. It's they do more work in basketball, football, baseball, a lot of pro athletes. And there are, you know, they do, I don't know, train four million kids a year or something like that going through. And it's just about creating a, a positive youth, uh, experience in youth sports for everybody. Right. So make them a better athlete, make them a better person. Uh, and, you know, double goal coach, triple goal coach. Uh, it's a really great program. And we really think about that all the time. And we think that competition is a great way to teach life lessons to these kids and learn how to deal with disappointment, learn how to deal with successes, um, learn how to kind of manage the, all of those emotions and feelings that go on when you're in an environment that's slightly uncomfortable, um, that, that's a competition per se. Um, so we try to get our little development team kids to go compete and just encourage them. And, you know, it doesn't matter where they place. It's a matter. Did you have fun? You know, did you enjoy the climbs? Did you enjoy that new cool climb you got to climb on? And how'd you do on it? Did you solve something? Did you learn something new? And the parents love that. Um, but what we do get a lot of complaints on is that we take those kids, let's say outside of a QE and they go to regionals, they sign up. And the climbs that have to be designed for our top youth D climbers or UC climbers, you know, and they're good. Like I said, there might be a national team member. So it's like, oh, it's a V8, you know, <laughs> my seven-year-old's trying to get on this V8 and they're just learning what backstepping is or what flagging is. And it's really hard. So you do see some parents saying, hey, this is terrible. That was an awful experience. And you try to say, hey, we, we'll talk to the kids. We'll, we'll make them understand that, look, this is, you did fantastic. It's just that these are designed for the best climbers in the country, you know? And so if you can get three moves on this or get the zone on one boulder problem, that's terrific. That's amazing. You know, we'd love to see that. But that's a hard sell to, to some of the new parents. Um, so I think that they would be very supportive. You know, we have half of our kids, even team level kids, not just rec kids, where the, the parents would be like, hey, this would be great if we had a level that was appropriate for my kid. It wasn't just open. They didn't have to compete against the other 11-year-olds on the team who are climbing V8. It's interesting, too, talking about the parents and with this nod to the history, it may, the JCCA 
which you referenced in your your own background, was formed by parents, right? All it was parents. exactly yep. what we're talking about. These parents noticed these issues that they were whatever, upset with, frustrated with, or they just wanted to tweak a little bit, and they decided to form their own organization. And so right. hearing us talk about this now, it's kind of like, well, maybe what's old is new, and it's kind of, it could be the parents kind of organizing. It's true. It's absolutely true. Uh, and they talk to us about that all the time. Um, like, hey, we'd love to see this. Does this happen? Is there some sort of, you know, thing going on like this? And I'm like, well, no, unfortunately, there's not, you know. But uh, and like I said, in some parts of the country, there are small things that are developing that where people do that. So Planet Rock has started the Planet Rock series a couple of years ago, and it's three events they're hosting. One of them is a sanctioned QE for bouldering and the other two aren't. And you can win the overall series. Um, unfortunately, you know, the top the only kids who are traveling or going to that are my top climbers, right? So it still is kind of the high end level. Um, so it's not like a community comp, which, you know, we have all the time and all gyms have these community comps where it's like, Hey, sign up for what's appropriate rec, intermediate, advanced, open, you know, what, what boulder grade do you, do you climb? Um, it just doesn't, it's just not there yet for the kids. Aside from these potential organizational evolutions, how else do you see youth comp climbing and comp climbing in general and youth coaching and the gym scene. How do you see that evolving in the future? I'd like to see something we try to do. Uh, and every time I try to do it, I realize there's a lack of resources, a lack of training, a lack of knowledge on my part, even after 30 years of kind of data-driven training. So um, I, my elbows, I kind of did the, the silly thing and overtrained for about three years and kind of ruined my elbows and uh, with typical uh, medial epicondylitis, a typical climber's injury, uh, and kind of stopped my climbing. So I don't do it very much anymore. And I've gotten into bike racing in the last 10 or 12 years. And the data-driven research uh, for someone who's a pro bike racer who races the Tour de France or something, or a runner or anything like that, it's unbelievable. It's like, it's, you can't tap at all. It's like, there is so much you can never even read all the, all the research. I'd like to see more of that. And so every time I go to a a coaching clinic that USAC puts on or a great organization is Canada strong. So um, that's the, an organization that's private now, but um, was formed by some of the top Canadian national team coaches and other people in the program. It's a much smaller program up there in general uh, compared to USAC. Uh, and they've been putting on some great seminars, two, three, four day seminars on training and bringing in fantastic people to talk and it, that's just evolving. I'd like to see more of that. I think you're going to see more data-driven, research-driven training. So I think that you're going to see rather than just like, hey, let's climb, let's do a four by four today, right? Let's let's work on power dirts. Let's climb this. Um, I think, and you're seeing more of that come out in books and other right, you know, things that you can follow too, training for climbing and um, several different books that are out. Um, but it's still pretty sparse. So I, I think that will evolve and bring it up to a higher level, what what, the, what people can achieve. So they're going to start focusing on those higher levels of training that's data-driven. They're going to focus on things like nutrition, all these little things that like have not really been done in the past. I think the formats will continue to evolve too. Uh, that's something I'm always interested in. Will they change? You know, there's all these rumors. Will they change the speed climbing route? When will they change it? How will that change? So um, I used to be, I'm a little bit still, but used to be involved more with uh, the IFSC and I'm internationally certified judge. So I've judged at Worlds uh, and some other big events. 
now that I've also coached the national team a couple of times, and now they're they're Olympic sport, they can't. The conflict of interest is really taken much more seriously. So, you're like, oh, you coach the national team, or you might do that. Go down to you know Ecuador and do Pan Ams, and you cannot judge not only that event but any event uh, in like with a two year period or four year period, which makes sense. But getting some insight and information on that, there's a lot of discussion on on formats and potential format changes, uh, like what's going to happen with speed. And of course, the Olympics having the triple discipline, right, combined only and then going down to speed and then boulder lead and double discipline. I I think you're going to see that evolve, too. I'm not sure where it's going to evolve to, but um, I think you're going to continue to see that evolve. I'd be very interested to see where it goes. I know, for instance... um, where bouldering is now with the volumes and the sort of coordination problems and slabs that kind of the difference from the power climbing where it was mostly 10 years ago is it is a neat evolution i know uh timmy fairfield was uh really setting for the asian x games for about seven or eight years maybe 10 years ago and he was if you look at those old tapes from the asian x games it was fascinating um way ahead of the game in terms of coordination dynamic really making bouldering separate from rope climbing in terms of you use, you know, holds on chains and standing on blocks to start the problem, you know, and all these, you know, double overhead toe hooks and pull through and just really crazy stuff. Uh, and he really thought, you know, it needed to go there for excitement and it has gone in that direction, but not quite all the way there. So I'm interested to see how that will change too. And I think there's a, again, the, the push pull on formatting between what caters to a grassroots level climber and what caters to the top end climbers and what's going to be used at world cups and the Olympics. There's always a a push pull there too, because the formats are right now are really geared toward the high end climbers. Related to that and the types of climbing types of bouldering and whatnot, how do you see the facilities evolving as well? Because it's, it's interesting because if you go to a gym that opened in the early two thousands, in some sense, at least to, to some of us, probably some of our listeners, probably not others, but that doesn't seem like that long ago. And yet you look at those gyms and you can definitely tell, oh, this is a, a different era. And it's interesting, too, that your your connections to First Ascent, because First Ascent, one of the gyms up there in Chicago was the first gym that I ever went to that offered free Wi-Fi. And there was this space where you could just work. And I remember going to that gym, that first ascent gym and thinking, wow, they're really encouraging me to just hang out here yeah. after my climbing. And, and of course that's where a lot of other gyms have gone. So looking ahead five years, 10 years, how do you see gyms as a space, as a, what they offer and amenities and all of that? How do you see that changing or evolving? I think you're exactly right. It is it is a community space that we want people to hang out in and, and make connections in. And the buzzword, you know, for us in marketing and for the whole industry in marketing is community, but it's it's true. I mean, anyone who's a climber knows that there is a strong community of climbers and that once you kind of become a regular, you just kind of slide into that community and it's a very accepting community and, it, and a tremendous community. I love it. That's what wrote me in 35 years ago and kept me. For people who don't understand it at all, I've always compared it to surfing. Um, the surfing community is a very, very tight community, too. And people who don't even surf kind of know, like, oh, surfers are surfers, right? And they do what they do in California, and they all hang out together. And they all look the same. And, you know, that's not true anymore, either. It's obviously broadened a great bit in 30, 40 years of surfing. But it's just a really tight community. And um, I think gyms are, like, our Arlington Heights, our newest gym is four times the square footage floor space, the building of the gym you saw of Avondale, 
downtown. And we only put, I don't know, three or 4,000 extra wall square feet of climbing in that space. And it's a 40,000 square foot building. So it's like, you know, it's almost the same amount of wall as Avondale, which is in like 16,000 square foot building. So I think that's the trend. I think it will continue. And if you look at, you know, European gyms uh, and South American gyms and Sharma's gym, you know, a lot of them even have, you know, coffee shops and even bars and liability is a bit different over in Europe. Um, So you sit and have a drink afterwards, you're climbing. Um, but I think that is the trend that will continue for a while is to get larger spaces uh, with less climbing. So there's more social and community space and offer more kind of programming to encourage that as well. Um, for me, it's I love that. Uh, but being into training and running team programs, there's always a bit of I want to use some of that space for training facilities. So that's something you're seeing a lot more of too. Like, you know, the moon board, what a great idea that Ben Moon had long ago. Um, and it's still going strong. We have moon boards, but of course you have um, kilter boards, uh, which we just uh, bought two of, which are just fantastic. Uh, tension boards and other training elements. I think that's going to continue as well. I think more specific training apparatus, again, with this more data-driven uh, approach uh, and more replicable kind of just systemized approach uh, is going to be really useful for the high-end climbers. So I think that you'll probably see more of that in gyms, um, but also lots of this open, open space and more styles of climbing. The whole idea of, you know, this has changed a long time ago. Re- any kind of real rock or built-in features is obviously gone. Um, so you're seeing something that's much more aesthetically pleasing, kind of modern arty, you know, feeling and pleasing. And that's even true with the holds, right? So you go in and you see what's on the walls and you have these large volumes, large feature holds, and you just see this, this piece of, you know, art that just looks really interesting to climb. It's not just a scatter shot of tiny little blue blobs on the wall. Um, it's something that's like, wow, that's really intriguing. Um, I see that lasting for a while. I don't know where, you know, it's just really fun and encourages people to climb. I think back to an interview I did with Peter Mayfield, who was mm-hmm. the founder of City Rock, one of mm-hmm. the first gyms in the country in the early 90s. Yeah. And what was fascinating is he had, he said that he told me his whole formulation for that gym was he didn't want it to just mirror outdoor climbing in an indoor setting. He wanted it to be as he, I think his quote was climbable art. That was yeah. the phrase he used. And we are seeing that in hyperdrive now. A- with Absolutely. Gyms. Yeah, absolutely. And that is, that's been, you know, a, a big change, but everybody building walls, you know, 15, 20 years ago, everything looked like, oh, I want to make this look like a cave. <laughs> you know, I'll make this look like my, like American fork, like hell cave and American fork or something like that. And then they're like, no, I don't want to, that's only a climber would appreciate that. Anyone new to it is like, this is really horrible. You know, this is not appealing at all. It's dark and dingy and everything is just, you know, sandy, reddish, brown or gray. And, uh, it's, it, that's totally evolved into a different space. So when you walk into a gym now, it's, it's like walking into a, a bit of this yeah, cool, cool, like modern museum of art or something. And it's just a really inviting space to be in. So in, in terms of all the open space too. What is the future of first ascent? What do you have in store in either the immediate sense or, or long-term? Uh, well, we're, still recovering from COVID. All the gyms are, um, it's been a challenge, uh, but we're, we're, coming back strong and uh it's going well so uh yeah arlington heights open this summer which is our biggest gym by far and beautiful and we have hosted nationals there this summer which was crazy um we 
we weren't even open. We were soft open right before that. And then we came in and did nationals, all three events, which has never been done before with all three events in one gym. And then uh, had our grand opening a week later with our members. So it was, it was crazy. Um, but we also have some other projects in development. Um, we're, we're looking to stay kind of in our general area. We feel like we understand the Midwest market well um, and are really connected to that. But we have some projects I can't tell you about them right now, but some that are in the works. So we're always looking forward to the future and kind of making those connections and say when things actually, you know, financially and at the right time and those developments are are, are coming along, then it's the time to actually put a gym in or, or make or push that project forward. We look forward to doing that and expanding. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity in the Chicago market still, actually, I mean, but also around the close Midwest, something we can get to closely. Uh, we're looking at those as well. But Chicago is still really underserved. If you take a look at the uh, the demographics and the population and you compare it to something like Boston or Denver or other places, the amount of square footage of wall space in a gym wall space we have per person, especially if you look at the core demographic, is really low. Uh, it's still you know two or three times less than some of these other markets. So I still think there's a lot of potential in Chicago as well. This is great. I'd love to chat another time and get more into the, not only all of this, the future stuff, but to get into some of the history because I could sit in and hear about Snowbird 88 memories oh, forever. God, the history is, is wild because it was, yeah, it, it's really fun to talk about. I mean, everything was just seat of the pants, you know, just winging it. I mean, even for, you know, even for organizations like USAC or IFSC, you know, it was just kind of winging it. And, um, just great stuff. Um, and it's so professional now. I mean, and the people like when we hosted nationals this year, the amount of resources that USAC brought, the number of people and the quality of people and the amount of full-time people and the knowledge they have was off the charts compared to thinking about some of the nationals I've been involved with. I used to judge a lot. So I would, I judged the planet rock nationals in the early two thousands where they didn't have good air conditioning and it was 110 degrees and people called the fire department and they emptied the gym in the middle of the finals round with 10 climbers on the wall and everyone had to leave and come back and things like that. And now it was just, it's so professional uh, and it's, it's amazing to see. I mean, they're doing a really, really good job with that. And the people we worked with were fantastic. So those resources are nice, but back in the day, there were some wild accommodations that had to happen to make things work. Well, Dave, I really appreciate you taking the time. I'm a captive audience for all of this stuff. And yeah, I just, uh, I love I love your, your connection to the history and I love kind of your vision for the future, even though we, as we said, maybe there are questions that can't be answered right now, but it's Yeah, it's wide open. It's wide open. So I'm as intrigued as anyone else to see kind of how that, how that evolves. Thanks for listening to today's episode with Dave Hudson. If you enjoyed what you heard, check us out next time. We'll be back with another guest and another episode very soon. And also, word of mouth helps. So if you like this podcast, we're appreciative if you tell a friend or tell a coworker about it. We'll see you next time.